welcome, Dr. Nancy Dureo. Thank you for being uh, on the show again. For our listeners, uh, if they don't remember, they didn't listen to that episode, you are a chiropractor and you also go to school at National University of Natural Medicine, along with me studying naturopathic medicine. And um, today I wanted to talk about ozone therapy, inflammation, and various other fun, interesting topics. Um, so I'd like to thank you again for being on the show. Thanks, Bogdan. I'm excited about it. Yeah, ozone has been around for a very long time, yet it's not used widely in the medical profession. Um, I think, let's see, I, w- I call it Tesla's gift to the medical profession. Mm. So back in the late 1800s, Tesla, Nikolai Tesla, um, patented ozone, the ozone machine that he had, and he introduced it to the medical doctors. It was found that not only was ozone great for reducing inflammation, but it was also great for killing microbes. And it was used, you know, pretty widely in the sense that that was a long time ago and electricity was somewhat new. But um, it was, when Big Pharma came along, the ozone sort of got left in the dust because there was it wasn't really part of that what became an empire really with the medical model of um, using medication rather than oxygen and electricity which is what consists of um, ozone is consisted of so mm-hmm. that's kind of where we're at is kind of pulling it out of the shadows and bringing it to the forefront mm-hmm. so ozone is uh it's basically O3. So it's, it's three oxygen molecules uh, together. And what it seems like is that when it was first discovered, it was used a lot for its kind of antibacterial, antiviral properties. Like it was used to disinfect um, like operating rooms for surgeons. It was used to disinfect wounds in the kind of late 1800s, early 1900s. And then it kind of went into the more um, alternative medicine route, we could say, where conventional medicine kind of put it aside and uh, a lot of alternative practitioners started using it. So what is your understanding of ozone and why it helps? Ozone, um, I would say primarily does two things. When um, So you get this excited molecule of O3, right? It's very... Um, transient in nature it's unstable so um, the effect of ozone isn't long lasting in say for instance a laboratory but um, the effects of ozone in the body can actually be much more long lasting because of what ozone does physiologically to the body so um, so ozone being uh, derived from o2 from a medical oxygen tank And that O2 goes into a machine where there's a chamber that it interacts with electricity to create that O3 in its excitable state. And then that O3 is administered either to a person, externally, internally. It is um, used in water or oil that could then be used therapeutically, or it could be used, like you're saying, to sanitize something or disinfect something which could be food, fruits and vegetables, meats, or it could be the room, a surface, or instruments, right? So ozone has many uses. And um, when it comes to using ozone for the body, the ozone will actually separate back to its um, natural state of O2 and a single O-negative atom. And then they go their separate ways and have, you know, different effects on the physiology of the body. Mm, so the theory there is that once the O3 kind of gets into the body, it goes into O2 and becomes a kind of usable oxygen form. So it's it's helped to like oxygenate the tissues to some degree. Correct. So it has it has a dual effect. The oxygen oxygenates the tissues. Uh, the mitochondria love oxygen as you know. So the mitochondria are going to become more active. So when you have more active mitochondria, you have shifted the body's metabolism into something different and new and better. Uh, The O negative goes off 
and uh, will disrupt the phospholipid membrane of a bacterium. Mm-hmm. And that's actually how ozone essentially, you know, dismantles a bacteria's ability to to do anything else in the body. It will, um, it will, essentially, the phospholipid will dissolve, and the cell will break open. Therefore, there's no longer a bacteria. The um, with the, a virus, it's a little bit different. Uh, the virus that has sulfhydryl groups is more susceptible to um, the effect of ozone in that those sulfhydryl groups will no longer be able to be activated by the virus. So the virus cannot get its its fingers into the tissue that way if it's unable to adhere um, to a cell or to a tissue, then the virus basically, sure, it's in the environment, but it's not going to do anything. It's kind of like having a hand with no fingers and you're not going to be able to open a jar. Interesting. So, yeah. I saw so something uh, interesting when I was reading about ozone was that it was thought to be something that might be useful for SARS. I thought that was a very specific um, reference. And I wonder, um, in these times, if it's anything that could be useful for all sorts of respiratory viruses, obviously coronavirus is an example. My friend actually sent me an article, which I didn't uh, fully read through, but it was about the use of ozone actually specifically for coronavirus, which I thought was pretty a pretty bold claim to make, but very interesting if there is some uh, merit to it. Do you, do you think that um, something like ozone can be used for all sorts of different infections as well? Oh, yeah. And it's actually not even my thought or my belief. Mm. Uh, You could simply do a PubMed search on ozone and find that actually the earliest reference I found when I was going down the rabbit hole about a month ago, um, I found a reference from 1978, Mm. coronavirus, um, where they were sanitizing a lab to coronavirus and they Mm. were successful in rendering the coronavirus, you know, gone um, using the ozone in that in that laboratory environment. So they've actually been killing coronaviruses with ozone for a very long time in the laboratory setting. Hmm. These um, studies also progressed to various things with in the Murine model, which is the rat model. So ozone and ostomy wounds, ozone and lung infections, ozone and viral infections, ozone and bacterial infections, mm. ozone and wound healing. It's It goes on and on. And what we're finding more recently is research coming out of Cuba and some other areas where they've done a lot of ozone research and ozone case studies with people with dental problems, um, inflammatory problems like autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, uh, sore throats, dental infections. Um, So ozone can be incorporated by a dentist in the treatment and repair of dental problems. Uh, Ozone is being used by dentists um, when they open up a jaw for an abscess and they need to, you know, clean up that area, they will apply the ozone gas to that area for a minute or so before they continue with their therapeutic reduction of the wound. And um, it enhances healing. And they still will um, give the patient an antibiotic, but using the ozone together with the antibiotic really reduces the chance of any further abscessing or complications post-surgically. I was originally trained in dental ozone nine years ago. uh, I was raised in a dental office. My mom's a hygienist mm. as well as a chiropractor. So we've been using ozone therapies in our office for external use and safe home use with our patients for fungal toes and poor wound healing and um, you know the vascular problems people get when they have diabetes and their their legs don't have great vascularity. We can infuse ozone into the skin by bagging a limb and putting a a tube that directs ozone gas into that closed bag and essentially oxygenate the person's leg Mm. and it and it heals they they do much better with that so i had a lady in yesterday who was breathing some ozonoid which is ozone gas bubbled through olive oil and that ozonoid went through a nasal cannula 
for 10 minutes, um, she sat quietly and just was breathing through that cannula. And um, she sent me a note this morning that she was much better. She's been dealing with this problem for over six months. Three rounds of antibiotics didn't work for her. And she was still having sinusitis with postnasal drip and a cough. And she's in her 70s and um, woke up this morning uh, much better. So she wanted to do another another treatment. So this is something that not only can they come into my office and just use my ozone generator to do some self-care, but they can also obtain the ozone, a small, very lightweight ozone generator, not medically uh, you know, not a very stout one like we would use for, uh, you know, an IV ozone or a direct IV ozone or even a bagged, um, you know, blood to bag mixture for ozone infusion into a person's body. But mm-hmm. there are some lower hitting um, ozone generators that people are using at home. So maybe I went way too far off on a tangent there, but this isn't just for doctor's offices. This is something that people can safely use at home when they're trained. It's very simple. That's uh, that's very fascinating, especially the part you said about it being moved through olive oil. Now, what's the, what's the idea behind uh, passing ozone through olive oil? Well, one can set up a little chamber. I mean, just simply even with a mason jar. Mm-hmm. Um, making a chamber for the ozone gas with a a bubbler from the uh, fish store, like an aquarium bubbler, mm-hmm. and um, attach it to a silicone tube. Um, silicone isn't isn't um, damaged too much by ozone, mm-hmm. like unlike some plastics would be. So we can use a uh, silicone tube to deliver the gas from one place to another. So the ozone gas is delivered into a small amount of olive oil in a closed chamber, and there is a second exit tube that hovers above the oil in the gaseous area of of this maybe mason jar chamber. And um, then a nasal cannula can be attached to that tube, and what the person is breathing now is, is an ozonoid. It's no longer an ozone gas, pure O3, but it's been safely carried now through uh, an oil. It's been attached to and carried through an oil, and it can be inhaled by the patient without any damage. So ozone is a, it's a free radical. I mean, it, it creates oxidative stress. And so you cannot breathe ozone gas in its pure state because it will actually irritate the bronchioles to the point where a person will have a cough, like a, like a bronchitis cough. And it's really uncomfortable. Um, So people don't go around breathing ozone. It's like, they just don't. It's, it's self-limiting. Once you get a cough, you like turn off the machine and walk out of the room, you know? So in that sense, it's safe because it's self-limiting. Nobody's going to stick around in that environment. But you can safely transfer ozone gas through an oil. I like to use the um, organic extra virgin olive oil. And like say, for instance, in a quart jar, it might be eight ounces of oil, just enough to cover the bubbler. And um, then as they're inhaling this ozonoid gas, the ozone is being delivered to the tissues in the lungs. So remember, we have two things happening. One is an anti-inflammatory and the other is an antimicrobial. So you can imagine how that might be important for the current coronavirus situation we have going on because it causes a huge cytokine storm, which causes so much leakage from the tissues and all that fluid going into the lungs for people getting a viral pneumonia. And I don't know if you know this, but the medical profession doesn't have a way to handle a viral pneumonia. Mm. They get completely out of hand. And as we know, people will die from that if they can't manage the cytokine storm. So currently, um, the medical profession is using biologics to control the inflammatory stress from this infection. And the biologics are the same that would be used for maybe a rheumatoid patient, right? 
those things that stop the immune system from creating more cytokine inflammatory, you know, molecules. So, so that's what's really exciting is you can literally create that, that little jar at home and take this little machine that you get that maybe produces 300 uh, parts per million of ozone not like what we might find in the office where we could be at a thousand or two thousand you know that's really strong but you can actually put those stronger machines on an oil bubbler as well and it would be fine to inhale that at a higher concentration still still would be safe but a, a whole a person at home wouldn't necessarily have access to that machine they cost more Mm. So for under $100, a person can obtain a small ozone generator and create their own breathing um, chamber. So, mm. yeah. So we talked a little bit about how ozone has some antimicrobial, antiviral um, disinfecting properties. Um, now I'd like to talk a little bit more about the anti-inflammatory aspects of ozone and how it impacts the inflammatory processes. When I was doing um, some research on ozone, I found a bunch of scientific articles about how it affects this inflammatory mediator and this other one. Um, and I'd like to hear what you think about that. Okay, there are three simple, simple ones to think with, I think that would probably be easiest to talk about. One is it will increase the glutathione peroxidase enzyme. Mm. And we know that's one of our greatest antioxidants that our body is able to create for us. Another is superoxide dismutase, another enzyme that quenches things like free radical damage or cytokine inflammatory chemicals. And then the third one is another, I think it's catalase, I'm pretty sure it's catalase. And that is, um, those three are the main are the main ways where we can use our upregulate our body's enzymes using the ozone in order to go after the cytokine storms that an infective vector would create. So that's the simple way of putting it without getting into all of the PPARs and you know mTORs and all those other things mm -hmm. that we're responsible for. Got yeah. it. Got it. So typically, um, you were briefly mentioning that the way that it's used is either uh, like a body part is suffused in the ozone gas. Um, it's never inhaled because it's obviously uh, pretty dangerous to inhale, but that it's also done intravenously. How does, uh, how does that work? Is there there's like a special machine that like pumps their blood through or something like that? Yeah, so there, there are three ways of doing this that I'm aware of. Uh, the first way that is less accepted is um, called DEVO, it's a direct IV ozone gas. And uh, what, what, how that is um, done is a vein with a large lumen. So somebody, a large vein, not a small vein, is um, identified. So the cubital fossa for most people will be a large enough vein in there somewhere. And um, then, a small needle because we we want to trickle the ozone in to a large lumen so that there's no endothelial damage to the lining of the vein because ozone in a sense it's like a hot shot you know it's it's it will cause free radical damage you know the the O negative can really be damaging to the tissue which we want it to be when we're going after microbes um, so a large lumen vein, a very small needle, the butterfly 27 gauge needles, half inch long are probably the ones that are used most often in this particular setting. So Dr. Robert Rowan, a few years ago when there was an Ebola outbreak, he and his office partner went to Sierra Leone and they brought ozone and they actually had five out of five cases cured using ozone and I believe they did it in this fashion because they were sort of in an area where they didn't have many resources. And Dr. Rowan mentions, well, it's, it's better to risk a little vein sclerosing than to die of Ebola. Mm. And 
So he has some papers out there uh, on PubMed, uh, on case studies, as well as on his website on how they used this style of delivering ozone to a critically ill patient because that's what they had and that's what they could do given the environment. Now, when you're structured with an office, it may be easier or safer because you may not want to risk the um, endothelial lining. So you can, the doctor can take and um, set up a tube situation where the patient's blood, a small amount of it goes into a bag and then ozone is added to the bag and mixed with the blood and then that is pumped back into the patient. It takes a while because the blood has to come out, get mixed in, and then basically get dripped under pressure back into the patient's body. But there's zero risk of burning a vein, if you want to just put it that way, of damaging or sclerosing the vein. So that's maybe a more accepted method. And then there's another um, style. It's sort of an auto, it's an automatic machine. I'm not recalling what that's, what it is right now, but the blood is pumped into a machine in a chamber mixed with the ozone and the blood basically recirculates through this machine back into the person's body. But as it does that, debris, cellular debris from the action of the ozone in the bloodstream is left behind in this chamber. And it's very odd looking. I, you, you'll be able to find some pictures of it online. But it looks like a pile of sort of brownish bubbles. And um, so that's one way in, in some, in other countries, I don't think it's done in the United States, but that's another method that ozone is used to clear the body of toxins and um, what, you know, cellular debris, I guess I just want to call it that because uh, once you start the killing off of microbes, you know, there's a whole host of things that has to go on for the body to clear all that cellular debris um, to remove it, you know, and um, not have significant, say, post-viral um, uh, episodes of continuing to feel sick after the treatment is done. So Dr. Robert Rowan, um, his what he says is his patients are immediately improved. So the ozone goes into the body over a 20 to 30 minute period, usually delivering 20 to maybe 100 cc's, depending on the, what the patient tolerance is. And, um, and it has an immediate action on the patient's physiology and on um, eliminating the microbes uh, activity which then will immediately stop any further production of say the cytokine action from the uh, immune systems attack in advance. And uh, you're basically taking a very sick person and creating a very quick change with them so they do feel better within minutes to hours or a day or, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Is there any, uh, like noticeable effect? I don't know if you've gotten ozone dump, but do you like feel it in some sense? Like, is there some kind of, um, like change in, uh, psychology or any sensations that you have? Yeah, there's both, you know? So when a person is better oxygenated, their cheeks will look more rosy. Like you, you would observe that. So you would see better vascularization of the of oxygen in the capillaries. They just look better. They'll be more alert because the brain also is getting more oxygen. So, for instance, in a patient who's having um, brain fatigue or brain fog because of these um, cytokines from the whole sickness, um, all the changes that happen when there's a sickness. So you put ozone in a person's body, they're going to get better oxygenation and less inflammation. So their brain will feel better. And we know that there's some connection between brain health and mood. There's just like there's connection between mood and gut health, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you can have a very wide systemic effect, both with mood elevation and energy production, because the oxygen will 
cause more mitochondrial activation and metabolism changes and improves. So whether a person's had a stroke or a heart condition, you know, they're still going to get better oxygenation to all of their tissues via the circulation. There was something um, interesting I was reading online about um, ozone and something that you mentioned as well, which was that Nikola Tesla built like an ozone generator or something like that. Do you know anything more about that story? It was a very brief mention. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, based on his observations of what was happening in nature with electricity in an electrical storm is where it all began. And um, he figured out how to essentially create an electrical storm inside of a glass container and passing oxygen through that created the ozone. Mm. And just to make it simple, right? And the story can go on and on. There's videos about it. Mm. But, um, it, and on Wikipedia, there's a pretty fair, um, you know, so story line of how Tesla created the ozone. Because right, he did so many things, but but that mm. is available too on Wikipedia. But it's basically putting oxygen through a chamber in the presence of electricity. Hmm. It's really simple in that sense. There are two different ways to do it. Some favor some people think one way is better than another. But you know, if I kind of favor Dr. Rowan's concept of like, you know what? Doesn't matter how you get it. If you need it, get it into the person and let them heal. Right. Like, mm -hmm. who cares how fancy it is? If you do it right, you're not going to hurt anybody. Mm. I think so, that's the key thing there. Yeah. And then there are other ways, too. So some of the less popular versions of um, applying ozone might be rectal insufflation or vaginal yeah. insufflation, mostly just because people don't want to talk about it. But there are some concerns there where it could be dangerous. You wouldn't want to overload the large intestine with too much gas because you could potentially rupture that, you know, that area of the body. And, and so if someone were to um, choose or have a need for rectal insufflation of ozone, they really need to consult with, with a doctor, with their doctor about how to do it and how much to do it and how to be safe and, you know, how to maybe managed using a delivered a, a very specific dose that's delivered into the colon without having a machine running under pressure things like that or even in colon hydrotherapy uh, ozone gas can be added and bubbled into the water as the colon hydrotherapist is applying that procedure to a patient mm. for a therapeutic effect um, it's really just oxygen right o negative and another another fact that's really important is, as far as safety goes is ozone's half-life is 56 minutes. So if I put ozone in a 50cc tube in an hour, I'll have half a half-strength amount of ozone. It does dissipate quite quickly in the air. So people are using ozone to sanitize buildings after fires or mold and various other things and it's a great odor reducer and um, so it can be applied in a building or under a moldy sink cabinet and as long as you're isolating that area of the building without people trying to breathe and work and live in that environment or cats and dogs you know you want the pets to be safe as well um, you can apply ozone to the environment to uh, reduce infections in the environment too so you know i'm using ozone at my chiropractic clinic in california to sanitize the air because i don't know who's sick and who's not people mm. can be asymptomatic with all kinds of things mm. so i run it through the hvac by turning the ozone generator on at a low level and running a tube to the intake on the hvac and then the ozone ends up in every room of the clinic Mm. and I don't have to worry about it. Awesome. So. That's, that's a really good idea of just kind of um, letting the, the ozone just kind of fill up the rooms and kill all the things that are in there. That's actually pretty wise. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so how... Uh, more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <For sure>. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing with this whole, um, with this whole situation? Like how, how is it affecting you? How is it affecting the way you deal with patients and, and things like that? I always wonder how people are wow. doing. Yeah, well, um, 
thanks for asking. I mean, in, in my case in particular, I see some light coming in, so I'm going to just kind of manage that a little bit. It's becoming sunset. So um, I personally, I have at least six autoimmune diseases. Mm. So therefore, those that, that qualifies me as one with um, underlying conditions. This is why over a month ago, I was on it for my own safety. And then I share and apply with my friends, family, and patients. So, so that's, you know, sort of what this little talk is about too. Mm. And I love research. I love empirical data as well, but I think right now it's really important to use, um, you know, the research that we have that already proves that ozone can be really beneficial to reduce my personal inflammation levels, as well as to reduce my exposure in the environment. I don't have much control over an airplane, so that's why I'm talking to you from California instead of Oregon, because I wasn't willing to travel by airplane, you know, back to where we're going to school. So I'm down here figuring it out for a while. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange situation. Um, yeah. At our school, you know, clinics closed down, classes are going to be online. Everything is kind of in, um, kind of like I would describe it as a limbo. And yeah. uh, I've noticed that it's been pretty hard on some people. And I've uh, yeah. I've noticed it being the most difficult aspect for me is just like, you know, you go about your day, you know, you have like a clinic shift and then you have like a class. So everything is kind of like scheduled for you and you're kind of used to that and you kind of take it for granted, you know, you get out of clinic, you do some work on your own, hang out, whatever. Yeah. But when you don't have that, it's like suddenly like it's like, like a rug just like pulled from under you and suddenly right. you have to really micromanage every aspect of your day or yeah. else you're just going to end up on Netflix all day. Like, cause that's the that's default, right? Mode, right? Like who isn't just who isn't just binging Netflix right now? Like, <laughs> darn, I'm not because I'm doing more and more research. And like today, mm -hmm. I took a little ozone generator and I sent it to a friend, and I packed it with all the things she would need to have an oil bubbler and a water bubbler and a bag for a limb. And I think the only thing I didn't include was a cheap silicone stethoscope because I don't have my stuff here. Mm -hmm. And because uh, you can use the stethoscope attachment to deliver ozone gas directly into the ears and the tympanic membrane, the small capillaries in the tympanic membrane will take up the ozone and circulate a small amount through the head and neck. You can use a, a special wand and deliver ozone to, the, to each tooth or to a problem tooth and strengthen and whiten a, a tooth or handle an infected pocket or whatever. There's all kinds of things. So. Yeah, Netflix. Wouldn't that be nice? But I have too many things on my mind that I need to get done. Right, right. Exactly. But it's been a nice break to be able to catch up on some of these things as well. So, um, so, so for me personally, just to you know make me number one, make sure I'm safe, because the combination of a coronavirus and my version of cytokine storm would probably be a bad idea. Mm. Um, especially knowing that there really is no medical treatment that works for a viral lung pneumonia, viral pneumonia, other than what we know about ozone. I do have a naturopathic, a couple of naturopathic doctors in town who, in, here in California, who will deliver IV ozone both ways, either um, with a small butterfly needle or using the bag mixture and putting it back in. So I'm covered there. I can run over and get an appointment uh, or send any of my patients over for that. So I'm thankful that in California that we have um, some assistance that way. Also in the state of California, as of today, I'm not restricted from practice. I just need to you know, be smart about it and protect myself and my patients. So I think I'm educated well enough to know how to do that. And um, whereas I would say at least 50% of my colleagues have shut their doors at mm -hmm. least until the end of next week. And I don't know how, you know, how that's going to change. Just hearing that um, the six foot order has been extended until the end of April mm. by the president today. So um, <clears throat> anyway, then, so with my patients, I set up stations in my clinic 
Saturday and Sunday when I was working. And they come in. I made a hand sanitizer with aloe from the front yard. And I picked up some Everclear when I was in Colorado. So I could make, it's 95% alcohol. So make mm. a nice strong hand sanitizer mm. with some essential oils that also are antimicrobial, antiviral in particular. So they come in. They have a choice. They can use a hand sanitizer or go over to the restroom and wash the soap and water. And uh, then the next station is to take some ozone oil and uh, put some ozone oil on the tip of a Q-tip and swab that around their their nose. Hmm. Okay. And then maybe even rub some on their hands if they feel like it. And then I go through the treatment. Meanwhile, I'm spraying down all of my equipment and all of the surfaces in addition to running ozone in the environment i'm spraying with straight everclear because mm. like that's 95 percent versus isopropyl which is 91 percent. so that's what i'm choosing and um so it's yeah it's added an extra you know five minutes to each office visit mm. for me to provide a safe environment and I, I practice in two separate cities in the same county here. And in one city, uh, half of my patients canceled and postponed their appointments, mm. even knowing that I had all these things in place. And the other county, the other end of the county, people were still calling, trying to get in and get appointments. So it was mm. interesting. I had one office where the schedule was a little light and the other office where I just didn't have enough time for everybody. Interesting. Were they so coming I in for uh, like adjustments or what were they? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And for, for their chiropractic adjustments. Yeah. Mm. And then I also have added for my practice, I've added a, um, a scheduler through Calendy because Schedulicity and several of these are offered through other providers. But so through Calendy for the next month or so, I have, um, a patient scheduler for alternate times for phone consultations. Because what I'm finding is because we know as healthcare practitioners that some herbs will increase the body's ability to fight viruses and mm -hmm. others will increase the type of cytokines that the viruses like to live in. Mm -hmm. So for instance, with this particular bug, I want to make sure my patients aren't using echinacea right now. Mm. And um, because that will allow the immune system, the balance between Th1 and Th2. And you know how we've studied, you know, what turmeric does, and which cytokines it inhibits and which it favors and things like that. So I'll get into great detail with my patients about what they should be taking and what they shouldn't be taking, especially if they have an underlying condition. So I've added these extra phone consultations for people who feel they really need to like go through their vitamin cupboard and figure out what they should and shouldn't take. Yeah. So that's just on the nutritional aspect for the nutritional counseling arm of my practice. Yeah. That, so, uh, that's a really good point about the, um, about the herbs, because we think of herbs typically as, you know, oh, that's just good for your immune system, but yeah. they are like complex medicines. They have you know, hundreds of different compounds and some, uh, some of the herbs obviously have a better effect for different kinds of conditions than others. Like there was all this talk going around about elderberry, like increasing the cytokine storm, but then there's also other articles that are saying, no, that's not true. And how do you know something like that? Um, it's, it's interesting. Um, I wonder if that's like a, if that's pointing us more towards using herbs in their more traditional sense where you give them or you take them based on what are, what's like the constellation of symptoms and all that, instead of like trying to be like an antiviral herb, because you don't know if that antiviral herb also, you know, increases the, uh, the inflammatory chemicals that actually make the condition more dangerous. Yeah. And, and, you know, we have a huge, um, introduction and exposure to that in our education mm -hmm. and it is really important uh, in particular for the smaller population of patients who have the underlying conditions and inflammatory um, diseases inflammatory reactive type diseases those are the ones that you really have to sit down and figure it out 
or refer to somebody who already knows it, you know, but uh, that can be critical. I have, I have literally seen patients hospitalized over using herbs that, that made that hypervigilant autoimmune system even more vigilant. Mm. And they went into a significant distress. So it's real. You can use herbs to help, and sometimes herbs can be harmful. So right. we need to pick and choose the right ones when the condition warrants it. Mm. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's switch up gears. We wanted to talk a little bit about um, inflammation today, um, as well. So my understanding of of inflammation is that it's a protective process of the body. In a lot of cases, it helps uh, regrowth, healing, helps you know stimulate the immune system. Um, but that if there's too much inflammation in the body, like systemic inflammation, it actually uh, becomes chronic, and then you start having all sorts of strange health conditions because of it, um, autoimmune disorders, you, you name it. There, inflammation has been linked with it. So what's what's your view on what the role of inflammation in health? That's a very broad question. I know. Well, and it's like, and you you really already covered it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, so inflammation is a response mechanism that can mm-hmm. be both good and bad. So when we exercise, we um, also have inflam- inflammation occur. So like IL-6, for instance, will increase. Um, under the stress of exercise. And, you know, that's the you stress, the good stress of exercise, not necessarily just the bad stress of exercise. I'm not talking about overtraining. And um, so, and because that occurs, the inflammation occurs, the response is to build more muscle tissue Mm. or help improve, um, you know, secretions in the joints for, you know, synovial activation so that there's nice smooth joint movement. Um, same with any response to like a wound, right? We get the swelling, the inflammation, but we also get the stimulation of new cells and new tissue being formed and clotting and all kinds of things happening. So, uh, and then, uh, with, with, you know, like we're talking about a viral or bacterial infection, part of what's happening, you know, the white blood cells are, are creating these cytokine storms in order to both kill the bug and create a healing response to the tissue. So it is all over the map. And again, you know, if you understand what's going on with the individual patient and they're already sick, they're already inflamed, and you're taking the approach that, that we know of in our, you know, our, our overall health, um, you know, what do you do first and next and last? And so last we're hoping would be a surgical intervention or a strong medication. But first, what's happening with the lifestyle? What's happening with, you know, their mental space? What's happening with their exposures in their environment? So once all of those are set aside and, and handled, say the person has shifted their diet and they're no longer working in a mercury mining you know, company and that's good to get they, out of there if you're working. Yeah, in mercury I know. Mining. This is not the but time it, to do that. <laughs> it happens, and they're getting they've eliminated any metal toxicity they might mm-hmm. have accumulated at work. And you know, a lot of people out there doing welding and soldering and painting and cleaning, and there's chemicals everywhere. So upregulating the body's ability to quench those free radicals and other things that happen. Um, so with inflammation. There's one other part of it. I think that Mm. we're just now beginning to understand, and that's the genetics. Mm. So I'm just going to use IL-6 again. Some people have genes where they actually produce more IL-6 than the next guy. So a person can come to the party predisposed to an inflammatory response and not even know why. I mean, it was just the way their genes came together. Maybe it's a family history. I don't know. You know, their genes, how how do they end up with that? So, um, so somebody who's got an underlying, say, IL-6, you know, inflammatory response happening, 
that's going to be a patient a little more mysterious, like, hey, you're scratching your head going, well, we already fixed your diet and we already changed your lifestyle and we already cleaned up your air in your home and all these things. So what's going on? You're still inflamed. It may be that they're just sort of genetically uh, predisposed to be that way. So that's when you might be looking at what else can we do? Can we use ozone to dampen the inflammatory cytokines even further? Because that's like taking a baseball bat, you know, to a wine glass, right? You can like really smash up a wine glass fast with a baseball bat, one swing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of like ozone can go in there and dampen that inflammatory response immediately. Or, you know, choosing which herbs and homeopathic remedies that would target that person on a slightly different intervention tissue level, like using herbs as medicine for the person because the diet and the lifestyle weren't quite enough. Mm. So, and then the whole mental emotional approach, I don't even want to get into that. It's not my forte. That's, that's a whole, it would be. a whole thing. The kind yeah. of, um, like the psychological, um, link to the inflammatory and immune system that is like fascinating like you brought up uh, il-6 well apparently il-6 is i think they said it was associated with states of aggression or something like that or like irritability and like another of the interleukins was associated with like anxiety and fear and it's like they all like weave around and it it makes sense from an adaptive standpoint because it's like yeah you know when you're when this situation's happening out in the world, your body needs to almost have a way to prepare for it, like a prepare for a potential wound, prepare for a potential infection or whatever, who knows. But um, it's fascinating yeah. how it's all so interlinked. Right. The stress response versus, you know, like the sickness behavior, right? Mm-hmm. You get an infection, you're cranky, right? You feel sick. You're not as friendly. You're not as warm and friendly. You're not as nurturing. You might be you know, having a shorter fuse. So I think, you know, that all comes into play right now. I mean, it always does, but I think we're more acutely aware of it. But there are things that we can do to be safer and be more protected, taking care of our families, taking care of ourselves, maybe even looking into is ozone appropriate, you know, for me as an individual or for my family, for my household and um, my clinic. You know, for me, the answer was yes, but I've been doing this for nine years. So I've had a long time to think about it. A lot of rabbit holes to go down and a lot of my colleagues who are already doing it, you know, so yeah, when applied properly, it should be very safe and and very effective. That aspect of the sickness behaviors, when I heard about that, that completely blew my mind open because here I was thinking like, you feel like crap when you're sick really because you know the virus or the bacteria is like destroying you it's taking over your body etc but actually a lot of the reason why you feel like shit let's use that word in this case yeah, <laughs> is because your own immune system is sending out like chemical mediators these like IL1 IL6 all these different things um and that makes you feel like crap and it's actually useful for people that when they're sick, they feel like crap because they don't, they want to isolate. They don't feel good. And that's actually really good for like the species as a whole. Cause you know, imagine if people were catching coronavirus and they were like, all right, let's go party. Like it just made people manic or something that would just end the species probably. (laughs) I know. Isn't it fascinating how all this stuff integrates? It really, it, it really blows my mind. And I really love learning. I feel I feel, you know, like going through medical school a second time is kind of outrageous. But at the same time, (laughs) I've just taken my 35-year-old education and upgraded it. Yeah. Because I get to be exposed to all the things benefiting from all the latest, greatest science that we've had and really understanding these pathways and how we can intervene as healthcare providers has just been fantastic and really helped refine our approaches in the healthcare field, especially in the naturopathic community. Mm. What are some of your uh, favorite, favorite kind of like supplements, herbs, things like that to do uh, to help with inflammation, maybe like dietary things you eat? Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of going to default to the stuff that has the best science behind it. So for most people, uh, turmeric, curcumin concentrates are very functional. And I'm finding that, um, 
some of the best ones, especially for resistant patients, might be liposomal deliveries, rather so a liquid or a cap or like a gel cap, um, rather than just a tea or just a spice or just a, a concentrated version of turmeric with a black pepperine mixed mm-hmm. in with it to in, improve the absorption. Um, so you kind of got to look at the patient, and there are there's a small subset of people who can't take it. They just, they literally have, don't have the genes to utilize turmeric, believe it or not. There's a very small subset that I can tell you I've seen a couple of them. Interesting. But um, the other is resveratrol. Mm. I love resveratrol. And again, the same type of delivery. You can have it in a powder, a liquid, a liposomal. Um, Plain old vitamin C is a good old favorite for most things. Um, and I'm avoiding using any, um, brand names. So I'm just kind of naming right, that makes sense. the key sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and let's see, what else, what else? Am I doing? Oh, you know, there's something that we haven't talked about that I'm going to throw out there, but it's, um, an ionic silver solution. Mm. So you've heard of colloidal silver. Most people have, and, right. and the man, who took such a high concentration of it? He turned blue or gray, or whatever. they call it blue man syndrome. <laughs> That's pretty I, cool. But that was excessive. Um, most people won't take that much. There was something else going on with him that caused him to want to take so much that he changed the color of his skin, and it's not recommended. I don't know that it. I don't know that it's, um, you know, a fatal situation, but it's definitely not healthy. So I like to use silver ionic solution. It's a liquid and it can be taken in drops or spray and it stops bacterial mitosis. And it also Mm. disarms viral um, sort of uh, populations from spreading. And Mm -hmm. um, it also works for fungal uh, situations as well. So I've been using ionic silver, I think since 1991. It's been around a really long time, and there are even hacks on how to create your own silver by um, some sort of electrolysis type of machine that can build electricity, water, and silver. That's how you make it. Mm. And um, so I, I, um, I like to use that a lot in my practice. You know what fascinates me about uh, silver specifically? How there's like this rich mythology around using silver to kill like werewolves and I think vampires yeah. and all this. Uh-huh. And it's like... I, I sometimes feel like um, ancient people, they just use the word like werewolves, vampires, demons, but they were really dealing with a lot of the same issues we deal with, like infections, plagues that they couldn't understand. And somehow, I don't know how they figured it out, but that it did have some antibacterial properties. And then like 18, 1900s, yeah, they were actually using silver solutions for disinfectant. And um, right. there was also this thing that I read into a while back where um, there was this book about like regenerative medicine. Uh, I forget what it exactly it was like the electric body or something like that. I think we might've talked about it, but he talked about how they would um, put like silver wiring or whatever in an infected area and then run electricity through it. And they found that that was even more of an effective way to kill bacteria. So that was right. fascinating. Yeah. I think the book you're talking about is called the body electric. Right. That's the one. Yeah. And- it came out close to 40 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it still holds true today. Yeah. And so, you know, with the silver ionic, one of the things is it's an ion, a single silver ion floating around in water. And it's not just any water. It's like going to be deionized and, you know, maybe reverse osmosis. So there's nothing in it to react with because the silver will fall out of solution when another mineral is present. And um, so it's, it's not, um, it, so what that also means is if you have an open wound, you don't want to use a silver ionic or even a silver colloidal there because the silver will bind to the minerals in the tissue and will leave a tattoo. So it's really something you would like take orally or internally when it's in its ionic form, mm. especially if there's take, a cut, uh, you don't want to. Take note, yeah. kids. You could yeah. make tattoos with silver, but you didn't hear from this podcast. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. You're not I actually the first didn't know that. To say that. I didn't know that. That's actually pretty Yeah. Awesome. So, so, you know, just in being cautious when using it with people is you wouldn't use uh, silver 
ionic as a topical solution over an open wound. Okay. Because it'll right, leave right. a mark. We'll just say a right. mark, not a tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. And some people will not find, they find it disturbing, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, various things like, like that. Uh, so, and again, so you wouldn't necessarily get an anti-inflammatory effect from using a silver ionic, but you're going to get a reduced um, mm-hmm. bio burden and less inflammation because the immune system will calm down. So, you know, besides using, you know, some of these other great tools, my two favorite are turmeric and resveratrol. And um, from there, you have to begin to be careful because can you use quercetin? I don't know what's going on with your patient. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? And I've got too many things going on in my head like that to just sort of throw it out there. You know what I would use? Like green tea is pretty darn safe. That would reduce some inflammatory cytokines, but it also has an immune system effect. It's going to be supportive for one arm of the immune system. I saw some article that uh, I think it was coming out of China that said uh, the certain kind of puer tea, when they tested it in the lab, it actually killed like coronavirus. It was obviously in vitro, but that's like, that's pretty weird. You know, like that makes me want to drink a lot of tea. I know. Why are there so many tea drinkers on the planet? Maybe that's why. (laughs) (laughs) Because they survive for longer. It's uh, it's natural selection. (laughs) For, for For sure. But yeah, so I was... I was hearing all through all this research and on the news that different vitamins are being held to uh, be helpful for obviously all viral infections, but specifically for this one. And uh, I was wondering if you were going to do like IV nutrient therapies when you get into practice, because I know I probably will. Oh, absolutely. So that's the reason I went back to school. Mm. So basically, it was to be able to provide IV interventions as a next level, like mm-hmm. as a chiropractor and a specialist in, you know, nutrition um, and, you know, parsing out which nutrients would have a create a very specific effect for my patients biologically and physiologically. So but at some point, if you just put it straight in the vein or straight in the joint or somehow get it into the body other than orally. Um, you're going to be able to create a better healing effect. So, yeah, so I plan on on having that as part of what I do in my practice, um, using needles to cause direct nutrient, you know, but I also will be using homeopathy, Mm. (laughs) you know, just a nice balance, kind of having the choice because right now after being a chiropractor for 35 years, I can see where, you know, we reach our limit in my profession. Like there is a point at which I need a rheumatoid arthritis patient to have a much more specific intervention and not an adjustment. Right. You could literally create extreme damage by inappropriately manipulating a rheumatoid arthritis patient. And Mm -hmm. we're all taught that in chiropractic college, which means that chiropractors are safe. You don't have to worry about having rheumatoid arthritis and going to a chiropractor because chiropractors are trained in how to deal with that condition. But when you're saying, well, what else can we do for this problem? As a chiropractor, I refer my patient to a naturopathic doctor, Mm. right? Because that's where I want them to be. I don't want them to have to go on a biologic unless all else fails because biologics have side effects. They're going to suppress that person's immune system and put them at risk for tuberculosis or some other disease. Right. So I think naturopathic medicine is really a great place for a lot more people to enter the healthcare system as a provider in order to help people not only, you know, reestablish their health markers and do healthier things in their lives, but also to honor and nurture the body's healing response by using something that's less harsh than a pharmaceutical Mm. when appropriate. Yeah. And I think one of the things I love most about the program, at first it was something that I didn't like too much, but now I've come to really appreciate it, is um, the focus on like understanding the conventional methods, like in depth, like knowing, you know, even though we might not necessarily prescribe a biologic or something like that for somebody with rheumatoid arthritis or one of those things, uh, to just understand 
what it does, how it works, why it's given, et cetera, maybe alternatives. Like, I feel like it's, it's just always useful to know more. It's not, you don't have to use everything, you know, but it always seems helpful in terms of, um, the IV therapy. I was actually pretty skeptical about IV therapy. Cause I was like, how does like, you know, putting vitamins in you help. But I actually, I did it one time and I had like a pseudo spiritual experience. So I was like, okay, like there's something to it. I remember, I think it was a, uh, it was a Myers, it was a Myers cocktail. It was only half the bag. And, um, that got administered. And I, I basically walked outside and I was like, Whoa, like everything is so like vivid. Like I felt like my, like my eyesight was like HD and I just felt like really calm. And I was having these almost like, um, like thoughts out of like a reverie or something. And I was like, what? And I was like, Oh, I just took that. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's something. It did something for sure. I know it did. I can feel it. Yeah, definitely. And I've had similar experiences. So like with my eyes, the first time I had an IV, all the greens were greener. Mm -hmm. And that's what really struck me because there was a tree right, right there in front of me. And I'm looking at the greens and I'm like, wow, they're so much more vivid. When you think about it, your retina is a cranial nerve. You know, there's that, that optic nerve is a cranial nerve. That's your brain tissue right there. Mm -hmm. So when you upregulate your brain's ability to function and perceive, it's definitely going to impact what it is you're looking at and your mood and your ability to think and have a clear mind. And it's, it's really a fantastic way to um, intervene and help people heal or maybe do better, have a better life um, with a little, you know, IV medicine, IV nutritional medicine. The cool thing too is um, that also really fascinates me is that it's, um, it's a way around people with gut issues. Cause a lot of times it's like, if you're not absorbing the nutrients you're getting, you can eat all the kale you want. it's like, it's not going into your bloodstream. So that's kind of yeah. like the, all right, let's just put it right in your blood. So I, I think that that is a, a pretty promising therapy. And yeah. especially as they, um, that continues to be studied and different compounds, maybe like certain um, isolated compounds out of herbs could be used in that way. Like there's not too much experimentation around that. So that's, people aren't really messing around with that too much, but yeah. that would be interesting to see. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And and we've already in our education seen where uh, a person with maybe diabetes and gastroparesis would benefit mm-hmm. from maybe a Myers cocktail on an occasional basis because something's wrong in there. Mm-hmm. They're not processing what they're eating. Mm-hmm. Their GI system, their tract is slowed down. They can't process and absorb the nutrients. And it's like, why would we want them to suffer, right? Like we have this tool that maybe can help them along as they're going through their, you know, inflammatory chronic disease. Mm-hmm. Um, another was uh, cardiac patients, right? Like being able to get a certain type of magnesium directly into Mm -hmm. that person's bloodstream can really help heart function. We learned these things in school. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's, it's real and it's researched. It's not, we're not making it up. We're not just going, Oh, here, let's try this. You know, there's a lot of research behind it. It's been going on a long time. There was um, a patient that came into the clinic, um, I think it was a year ago and they had a dyskinesia. So they had like a movement disorder and they were coming in for IV that was high in magnesium and other uh, vitamins. Um, Probably glutathione too. Usually glutathione for neurological patients. They tend to to push glutathione because it mm -hmm. will reduce some of the, um, uh, that inflammatory stress that Mm -hmm. occurs in patients with neurological disorders like mm-hmm. gastro like um you know what were you saying a, uh, a movement yeah. disorder dyskinesia. whether it's yeah. parkinson's or dyskinesia yeah. of other other sorts yeah yeah right right yeah i don't remember if glutathione was in it it might have been but i know that it was really high dose magnesium and it was actually really remarkable because he walked into the room and he was like you know having all sorts of like tremors and and uh, uncontrollable movement and he was barely even able to lay down. But at the end of the IV treatment, he got up, just stood up just completely normal. And I was like, 
whoa, like if this is a placebo effect, this is like a, the craziest kind that could happen. It's like a miraculous one. Um, yeah. But I don't think it is because he had this cycle where, you know, he would come back every week to get the IV treatment. And, you know, for a few days after he would like his tremors would, you know, significantly reduce maybe like 70, 80%, sometimes not at all. Um, and it was, it was really remarkable to see that. And I was like, okay, all right, there's, you know, there's something, something to it for sure. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, That's I love exciting what it is so. we'll be able to do in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you, did you do any research into like NAC, like N-acetylcysteine and th- that, like that fascinates me how it, how it's used actually to um, help people with like overdoses. Cause it helps, you know, drive liver detox and things like that. It's actually used in the conventional system. And then yeah. there was some research coming out that um, N-acetylcysteine um, is actually helpful for a lot of psychological conditions, which I thought was interesting. Cause I'm like, how are those two things uh, connected? So one of the, one of the commonalities between those two things, again, is glutathione because you right. need cysteine to produce that. Mm-hmm. And we know that can affect brain and neurological activity, just like it can affect the liver's ability on those biotransformation pathways to eliminate toxins and another thing it's good for is lung congestion so people have really thick mucus and they can use Mm -hmm. n-acetylcysteine to thin the mucus so that's something i've been using as a tool long before we had guaifenesin Mm. guaifenesin is the active ingredient in mucinex and that is used to thin the mucus so that a person can expectorate that fluid out of the lungs more easily and um, yeah, there's just like, so there's a third thing an acetylcysteine can do. And it's really fascinating how we can sort of break it down specifically and use these things. You know, it's not like water. Water is good for everybody. You know, air is good for everybody. But then we've got these cool little things we can do with micronutrients that mm-hmm. can really shift a person's physiological state. Yeah, it's interesting with the guaifenesine how um, how sometimes it'll be in like cough formulas along with a cough suppressant. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> what's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. It's yeah, I know. I but don't know what to say. We do we do what we can, you know. We do what yeah. we can. Well, um, I I think that's uh, that's time for us. Uh, I want to thank you again, Nancy, for for sharing your wisdom. I love learning about ozone i actually didn't really know very much about it so so thank you for coming and sharing and the the nuggets of wisdom we have shared are you're welcome it was fun well taken